So to, to kind of lay out a, a somewhat humorous story for you, I had every intention today on getting back into finishing up the feast. We've got about two or three weeks left of that and had everything typed up, had everything ready to go. And then yesterday, uh, I, I was in Lincoln. Yesterday was the annual powerlifting meet. We had a kid from Rockport that went up there. And so I went up there to help him out and whatnot. And it's 6.30 in the morning and we're sitting in the hotel and I'm, I'm doing some work on my computer and my screen starts to flicker. And then it just shuts off. And... Uh, I'm like, well, that's, uh, that's interesting. So I did what anybody would do. I powered it all the way down because I couldn't see anything. And I went to power it back up, and it wouldn't power back up. So all my notes, all everything is on that computer, which I cannot currently access, which is interesting because um, I, I was like, okay, you know, this is, I've been wanting to get back on track. I really like to do things in series. I like to finish one series before we have an off on a bunch of rabbit trails and other stuff. But there was something that had been stirring on my heart for the last couple of weeks, honestly. And uh, this is something that I'm working on for down the road. Um, either, you know, this part of this might get worked into the next series that we're doing, but definitely the one after that for sure. And it's talking about revival. And uh, I was just sitting there thinking, I'm like, okay, well, obviously I'm not going to be able to do what I had planned to do because, as you guys know, I usually have 20-some pages of notes and stuff that I've gone through. Um, that's the finished product. It's usually 40 to 50, and I narrow it down because you guys like to go home. So you're welcome. And, uh, but, but so anyway, and when I do this, I, uh, when I'm, I'm preparing things for down the road, I do it one of two ways. Sometimes I sit on my computer and type it out. But most of the time, I just grab these notebooks, and I have tons of these things, and I just start writing it down. And I start writing down different things and stuff that I'm putting together. And then as I go back to it, you know, sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's a month, sometimes it's longer than that. I go back, I can't read my own handwriting. And so I have to look at that. I'm like, what does that say? And what is it's like trying to translate a foreign language? And so from that is what you're going to get today. <laughs> Hallelujah. But revival, when we talk about revival, what it is, what we think it is, and what it truly is, really doesn't match up. Because America has been praying for a revival. It's a big focus in America right now, especially among evangelicals. I mean, you're hearing it all the time. And the truth is, is I think we're starting to see it. Because there's an uptick in, in these prayer groups that are going. There's lots of praying going, like I've not seen maybe in my lifetime. Now, some of you have been around a little longer than I have, but I do not remember a specific time where people were really just pouring into this idea of prayer. We've always had the National Day of Prayer, and that's always been a big deal. But you know, on the National Day of Prayer, I think it was either last year or the year before, they had over 50,000 groups praying. Not people, groups. And many of these were meeting in civic buildings, government buildings. Uh, sometimes it was courtrooms, sometimes it was city halls and things like that. They're meeting at the core, and this is a big change. Even the, uh, the uh, see you at the pole thing, you've watched somewhat of an uptick in what is happening there, is that you have students who, it's student-led program, who are coming together to take one day out of the year to meet early in the morning and spend time praying. That's always a precursor to revival, Always. Okay, but when we look at this, we, we, we've got all of this coming together. And what we see here is, is there's several things that we see in common with what we would call revivals. When we look back in history that we see for, for in revivals. And the first thing is they are not a weekend. They are not a month. 
they are multiple years and sometimes multiple decades. Now, the biggest revival that we've had in this generation, I think we would all agree that those of you familiar with, is the Brownsville Revival. That lasted, was it approximately 10 years or something? It was, it was a long time. I think it officially started in 1993, but it really gained stream in the mid-90s and then lasted to about 2005, I think. Somewhere in those range, those dates may not be accurate. But there was something about that this all started here was a two-year prayer initiative. They had people that were just praying, not praying to see a move of the Spirit, praying to reach the lost. That's what they wanted. And in the charismatic world, when we think of revival, we think of a weekend meeting. We're going to have a revival meeting, and then that, that the Holy Spirit's going to move, and you're going to see people do some wild and crazy things and stuff like that. And stuff like that could happen, but that's not, the, that's not what revival is. Because you think about revival, it's reviving something. What are you reviving? Something that was dead. You're bringing it back. We're not just energizing it. It was dead. Now it has life. It's just like when somebody is born again, when they give their lives for Christ. Now, besides that one, and there was a lot of things. And if you want to hear some cool stories, I mean, talk to Jim. And he, you went down there. Anybody ever with you? Okay, Harold Cruz, there you go. I thought maybe Paul went down there or Stan went with you. But, but, uh, but I mean, it was, it was interesting, and he was telling a story. Steve Hill was the pastor of the incredible man, integrous as the day is long. And just like anything else, eventually man gets in and screws it up. That church ended up splitting at the end of the thing. It ended up negative. But you know what? God loves all of those people, even the church split, even when it happens. It wasn't the will of God, but that's what happens from time to time. But Jim's telling this story, and I should really have Jim tell it because I'll screw it up. But, okay, you just correct me where I'm wrong because I have the microphone, okay? And he's holding the thing. He's recording. We're just saying hi to Facebook world right now. So, uh, but you were there. You were driving around. You see this homeless guy on the street, right? Not correct. Not correct. I'm already off to a bad side. You were in Florida, correct? Yes, we were. Okay, I got one right. All right, what happened? We received a phone call to go pick up a gentleman. So there was a homeless guy. He was not homeless. I'm done. Go ahead, Jim. What do you got? Oh, okay. Keep talking, Jim. It's a great story. He'd been drinking is what that means, if you didn't yeah, know. And we, was headed, we was headed back to the deal, and we, when we headed back, he grabbed this big jug of whatever he was drinking to drink on the way back. Not Diet Coke, I assume. Not Diet Coke, I assume. And anyway, as we was going back, I was sitting in the back seat. Him and Harold was in the front seat, and I was just praying over him. You know, I said, Lord, you can turn water into wine. You can turn that stuff into water. <laughs> and the closer we got to Wow. Okay. Are you sure? Because I'm not done good so far. So they're in the meeting. You went in the meeting, right? Okay. They're in the meeting and the service is going on and it was at the end of the service, right? Interesting. Wow. Wow. Okay, finish the story because I'm going to screw this thing up. <laughs> so anyway, we went through the church service that night and wonderful things happened. It, the Pensacola revival was a revival of repentance. Mm -hmm. Changing people's lives. 
It's a good thing. Right. Yeah. It's incredible. And here's the thing you need to understand. Number one, to get into that, you lined up in the morning to get into that evening service. That's how many people were flocking from all over the world for this. Two, if somebody walked into this room and I was standing up on the stage, they might stand out to me. There are thousands of people here, and he notices the one guy that Jim happened to pick up and sprints across the pews. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried that before. I did once when I was a kid. I made it six pews and missed the seventh. And yeah, right, right. They held together. Well, I'll tell you what, pews are not soft. They hurt. But I mean, that's just one story out of thousands. I mean, the fruit that came out of that revival is incredible. A ministry school was born out of that, sending missionaries all over the world. And that's how we judge these things is by their fruit, ultimately, because there's a lot of things that get called revivals, but there's very little, if any, fruit that comes out of it. It's just a hype meeting. But when we go back in history a little bit, We've had three great revivals in this country that even the history books write about. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about those today. When we get into this stuff later on, I'm going to go in more depth here. But you've got the first great revival, right? It was, it was from 1730 to 1770. Then you've got the second one was 1801 to 1878. And you get the third one getting up into the early 1900s. The second and the third um, overlap just a little bit. But, I mean, it's, it's when you look at what happened, these were not short spans of time. These were not weekend meetings. These were not a couple of weeks. These were years that this went on. But it's getting to where did they come from because they have these things in com common. Now, you talk about the first great awakening is what this is called. The first, I call it a great revival because that's what it was. But the first great awakening, when it started in 1730, now think about this. The United States was not the United States in 1730. 1776 was the Declaration of Independence wrote. It goes all the way to 1770. If this does not happen, I firmly believe that there is no United States of America, that we would still be British and talk funny and spell our words differently and drink tea and not coffee. This is why we're American. But this entire thing laid the political and the spiritual landscape to get to the Constitution, right? 1776, you got the Declaration of Independence. 1787, the Constitution is written. And 1789, I believe, it was the Bill of Rights. How did they get there? It's because of a guy named George Whitfield. You've got a 40-year span of revival, and this man is at the forefront of 34 of those years. Now listen to this. He traveled from Maine to Georgia and back over 34 years preaching three times a day. That's 18,000 sermons. Now think about this. He didn't, you know, it's not like you just jump in American Airlines and, and shoot down there. If it was United Airlines, they might beat you up before you get there, but, but whatever. But, but he didn't just travel down there. He's on horseback, and he had this pulpit, and they still have it today. It was this collapsible pulpit. He'd strap it to his horse, ride to the next city, and start going that way. I mean, you're talking about 18,000 sermons. Now, what about the bad weather? It snows from time to time. Maybe there was a tornado or a hailstorm. Didn't matter. He still went. 
how lazy are we, right? We gripe if it's not air conditioned. You know, they want me to come back to the Philippines. I said, you need air conditioners, right? <laughs> Don't judge me. You're right there too. I Listen, we get it, all right? We're creatures of comfort. I was telling Jim, I was explaining some of the stuff that we do in, in El Salvador and stuff, and I'm like, it's the best missions ever because you stay in the Crown Plaza, the food's fantastic, you have air conditioning and running water. That's missions work, baby. That's what I'm talking about. We're going to go on a missions trip to Hawaii. Let's go. I'm off topic. Didn't take long. But, but I mean, think about that guy. He was just, he was in it. This is all he did. City to city, town to town. He went out there. And it nearly killed him because the last two years of his life, he'd get up in the city and he would preach his sermon. And when he'd get done, he was so weak, he'd spend time vomiting and coughing up blood the last two years of his life. Everything that he had. But if he had not done this, we do not have a country. It was the precursor to this. We don't talk about that. Here's a crazy fact, all right? 80% of the people living in the United States at that time heard a sermon from him on their own. They did not have TV. They did not have radio. They did not have Facebook Live. They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. That means that they physically were there and they heard him. Now, there's a man committed. What did it take for him to be able to do this, to be a part of this revival? He had to give it all. And in the moment, it wasn't called a revival. It wasn't until years later, looking back, that it's like, wow, there was something going on there. But the fruit of it was incredible. Now, all revivals have opposition. All of them do. Brownsville is no different. There was one up in Toronto, started strong, ended weak. But there was opposition all along the way. Now, who do you think is going to be the ones opposing revival? You're going to have the atheists. Ah, we don't want any of this stuff going on. You're going to have all the maybe non-religious type people, whether they're atheists or not. Whoever you want. So people like, just let us live the way we want to live. Those are the ones who oppose the revivals, right? Wrong. It's the church. Look at Jesus. Who got in his way? Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees with Jesus, Sadducees with the apostles. Constantly getting in his way, keeping him from spreading the gospel, right? Same thing today, Brownsville. Who were the biggest haters on Brownsville? It wasn't non-church folks. They were the ones flocking to it. It was the people in the church. That's not a move of God. That's something of the devil. Can't go there. They might pray in tongues. Oh, my goodness. Heaven forbid that we do something that the Bible says. I mean, you got all this stuff going on and all these haters that are happening here, and yet it still flourished in spite of that. Now, getting back to George Whitfield, he had the exact same problem. He had people in the church. This is an evil man. He's evil. He can't do this. You don't preach out in open air. We preach in churches. It's not religious enough if you do it that way. We've never done it this way. Why can you do it that way? You can't do it that way. That's not how God said to do it. You can't just take the message to the people. People got to come to the message. That's the attitude. I mean, we're sitting there like, oh, that's stupid. We don't think like that. Yeah, we do. We absolutely do, because we're, we're, we're real quick to talk about, oh, we want revival, but what we have in our mind of what revival is isn't really revival, it's just something that makes us feel good, and we're not willing to do what it takes. How many of you would be willing to preach three sermons a day for 34 years at the point it's going to pretty much end your life because you are worn out, and you've got to travel by horseback regardless of the weather? How many of you guys are going to sign up for that one? Me either, right? I mean, because we're why? We're soft. We're soft. 
His problem wasn't with the non-church folks. It was with the church. They, they were the ones that were giving him a hard time because they'd never done it this way. Now, you got Charles Finney, who was in the second great awakening. Oh, they came against him, too, because he did something crazy. He did an altar call. We don't do altar calls. If they're going to come to Jesus, they have to get baptized, go through some form of a confirmation, and that's the only way that they can do it. We don't altar call. You can't make a decision to follow Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. That's not religious enough. That's not what they said. I'm adding that part. It was this transition of doing something new versus something old. Think about what Jesus said. You could put new wine and old wineskins. It seems like every time that God is moving the church into a new direction, who's the ones that oppose that? It's always the old religious sect, okay? I'm not talking denomination specifically. I'm talking about we have that same mental attitude today. What do you mean? Well, you can't do that. We've always done it this way. I got churches that are nearly closing their doors. The, 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 a pastor or somebody in the church is like, you know, we should really try doing something like that. No, 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 no. We don't do that here. I'm like, well, keep not doing it because you're not going to be around much longer. So you've got all of this. It's this transition of doing something new that causes the problem. Down in Brownsville, I mean, you had people flocking from all over the world. Had to be great for the hotels and all that. You'd think they'd have gotten on board with it. Um, they probably were on board with it. But, but all the local churches there hated them. And, and the amount of, of animosity towards it was unbelievable. Steve Hill was labeled a heretic by many. And here's, I mean, if you'd ever met the guy, um, I know people that knew him. I've never met him myself. They said he was about the most compassionate man and had a, a, a love for the lost like nobody you've ever met. I mean, he was just, he was the real deal. And, and so it's like, how can you hate on that? Well, because it's different. He's doing something new. You see, we remember when we go back and we read about George Whitfield and say, we remember all the stories and all the incredible things. We don't remember his haters. And he had plenty of them. And yet never once did that slow him down or deter him. He committed his entire life to that work. Now, you also have to remember when it talks about what these things have in common is these revivals are not just here and now. They are transgenerational. They don't just affect you, but they affect your families or your cities. It's beyond just one age group. It goes past that. It, it lays a foundation. Now think about this. When the Israelites were underneath the Philistine control, they were miserable. It's in the book of Judges. Miserable. They hated life. They're praying, God, please forgive us. Now why were they there? Because of their own dumb decisions, right? They, they put themselves in that boat. God brings judgment on them. And so they're like, please, God, forgive us. And so God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. It starts in Judges chapter 13. If you brought your Bible... I'm going to have to ask you to open up to Judges chapter 13. I'm going to wait 12.2 seconds to allow you to flip over there because I don't have it on the screen because my computer died. We need to pray life into my computer. I miss it. Judges chapter 13. It's on page 331. If you're reading the Thompson Chain Reference New King James Bible. We're starting in verse 1. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, now you notice how it says again? That means this isn't the first time. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. That's about one generation. That's really how they typically look at that. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to, to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. I'll explain that in a minute. 
For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now here's the thing that this doesn't talk about here, but you can see it in other places, is that they're in the hands of the Israel, or excuse me, the the, the I just lost my train of thought. They're in the hands of the Philistines. There we go. I'm okay. They're in the hands of the Philistines, and they're not happy about it. The Philistines hated Israel, did not like him. They weren't cozying up to him. They weren't saying, hey, come on over here. No, they were basically indentured servants. They were slaves, and they were making their lives miserable, and they hated, and they would cry out and repent. So God, in his infinite wisdom, hears their cries and says, okay, fine. I'm going to send you a deliverer. I'm going to bring revival. And he goes to, sends an angel to a woman who is barren and can't have children and said, hey, you're going to have a son and he's going to raise up and he will deliver the Israelites. Now, here's the question. How long does that take? You got nine months of conception. Kids typically aren't deliverers until they're, let's just call it 13, being very generous. We'll give him the uh, David effect. He was, he was a young boy when he took down Goliath. I mean, guys, here they are now. They're praying, at some point, praying for God to essentially send revival, right? Set them free, bring them back in the way. They've done evil in the sight of the Lord. Therefore, here comes this deliverer, and they will begin to do right in the eyes of the Lord. And so it wasn't overnight. He sends a baby to be born and raised up, and at some point will do this. It, it crossed these generational lines, right? Now, for us, we're praying for revival, and if we don't see it, when we say amen, we're like, I wonder why that didn't work. We're a microwave generation. we got to have it now. But here we see it's, it's many, many years before what they prayed for was going to take place. Many years. This is the thing. Samuel Davies, okay, he was probably called the greatest pulpit preacher. He was out of the second great awakening, I believe. Okay? He had a little guy that was following him around as part of, of his you know, uh, mentorship. He was pouring into this guy. As is many, there's Gilbert Tennant, Samuel Cooper, some of these guys. I mean, they had these little guys that would follow them around, and they would, they would just you know, listen to what they were saying. They would learn from them. It's what we call discipleship. We do it with our kids. We pour in them. Sometimes we do it with other people's kids, but we should be pouring into somebody. Now, th- these are names that you're going to recognize. Okay, Samuel Davies, who, again, the greatest pulpit preacher, maybe that's ever lived. I mean, the man is considered incredible. You can see the writings of his sermon. They were powerful. This man was hooked up with God. You know the little guy that was following him around? Patrick Henry. Name sound familiar? You probably didn't know who Samuel Davies was, but I know you know who Patrick Henry was, who was considered one of the greatest orators to ever live. Now, where do you think he learned that? He learned that from Davies. Samuel Cooper, okay, again, another great awakening preacher. The guy following him around, John Quincy Adams. Followed him around as a little kid. Gilbert Tennant had Benjamin Rush by his side for years. These are all preachers that had people that had a major impact in the United States. No doubt about it. And see, here's the thing. We're beginning to see a little bit of a shift. I've been looking at these trends here, okay? Some of this is my opinion. Um, Some of this is just things that I'm seeing. It doesn't seem like it because of what we see in the media. you got to get past all of this stuff. But it seems to be for the first time in this country, we are 51% pro-life. We're a majority. Now, when did this whole thing go south? It was back in the 70s when Roe v. Wade hit, right? And for decades, people have been praying. But what does God do? He said, I will send you a new generation. I will send you somebody that will bring that up. For the first time ever, we are 51% pro-life. Why? God loves life. He loves those babies. He doesn't want them to be destroyed. Here's the, ready for this one? 
72% of teenagers are now pro-life. Now, how did that happen? Because their world around them is just completely opposite. Only 19 believe that abortion on demand should be legal. 19% of teenagers. The generation that often gets forgot by the church, and, but gets catered to by the world. Because everything is bombarded. In school, they're taught it's okay. There's just whatever feels good, do it. And the media is certainly not going towards a more Christian phase here. They're going the opposite. How is this happening in spite of all the things that are going on around them? There's only one answer. It's a generation being raised up. The only thing I can figure, right? What else would explain it? Because nothing else makes sense. God has to be it behind us. And, but we've got this microwave generation. We want it now. And the problem is, and this is the thing you need to think about, when you're young and you're growing up in the church, the generation in front of you is actually paving the way for you at that point. But what happens is that when you get to that point, you just want it the way that you want it. You forget that you had your way, and now it's time for you to pour into them. And that's how that cycle continues to grow. What happens oftentimes is the church, well, we don't want to do that. That's too new. Even though maybe the younger generation is looking for something a little different, and the Lord may be leading them a little differently than the rest of us, but yet we've always had it this way, and we like it this way, and we don't want anything different. There was a guy, a friend of mine that goes to a Berean church, and I love Berean churches. I think for the most part, they're pretty, pretty darn good churches. But there was an older gentleman in there that did not understand why the church needed to buy a soundboard. Now, this guy could not hear you while he's talking to you. But why do we need a soundboard? We don't need any of that newfangled equipment. Newfangled. It was newfangled back in the 30s when they invented it, but whatever. We don't need any of that newfangled stuff. We can just stand up, sing hymns together. We don't have to hear one person over another. It's like, what on earth? Of all the things to gripe about, but this is the stuff that we deal with. Because why? We're more concerned with what we want than what we can give. We're looking to meet our needs, not the needs of the one next to us. And these are the generation we should be pouring into. You know, Willie George, he, he transitioned. If you've seen Church on the Move in the last uh, 10 years or so, at one point, it looked just like Rama. okay? You got teal carpet, you had the flags, uh, everybody wore, like the women wore pantsuits, the microphone, the big colored microphone things on. I mean, it looked, it looked like Rama. They had a horn section in their band. You go there today, it looks completely different. The, it looks more like a, a, a big auditorium, you know, things like that. It's more hip. Okay? I don't know if hip is hip anymore, but I'm using it. So you know what I mean. But, but I mean, they transitioned. And the reason they did that is because his mentor was Lester Sumrall. He loved and adored Lester Sumrall. Lester would have him come up and do their children's things at their big crusades that they were doing all the time. And he went up there to Lester's church one time. Um, and as he was looking around, he noticed that there wasn't a single person in this church under the age of 60 years old. Because the generation was getting forgotten. And it, it bothered him. He's like, we cannot do that. Because Lester's church will not survive once Lester's gone. And guess what? It didn't. And he called that several years before it happened. But you had a church that was going to die out because they weren't reaching that next generation. The generation that perhaps God is raising up to make a difference. You ever think about that? We don't. We always want what we want. We're not looking for what, what maybe God wants. And so... When we get into this and we talk about revival, you know, it's one thing to pray about revival, certainly important. I mean, crucial. But the other thing about it is, are we willing to do the work? I mean, earlier I asked you, how many of you guys would jump on horseback three sermons a day for 34 years? I don't want to do three sermons a day today, let alone 34 years. See, we have to act upon it 
if we want it. I know the prayer team meets every Tuesday night, and they're praying for such things, praying for revival. We want to see the Spirit of God move in this area. We want to see lives change and touch and God get a hold of them and change them from what they were. But it's not enough just to sit there and pray about it. We've got to be willing to do the work. You know, when Brownsville started their prayer, I don't know if they really believed it would be what it began, became. And the amount of work. Every night they had a service. And it wasn't a small service. It wasn't just a little casual get-together. They had the music. They had the sound. They had all the other stuff that went into that. You had ushers. You had people in the parking lot filtering people in. You had all these volunteers that gave up every night of the week for a decade. I remember one time somebody had gone out that was working in it. And for three weeks, uh, they had not done laundry. Now, I don't know how many clothes you have, but three weeks is pushing the cusp of we're showing up in footy pajamas or something like that. I mean, it's, it's time to get something clean. And so his wife stayed home one night to finally get caught up with laundry. And she said it took a week to get all the clothes washed because they were at church every night. But it was a commitment that they had made. You know, it wasn't wrong to stay home one night and get some laundry done, but it took forever. Now, when we talk about this revival stuff and how do we get there, it first starts with prayer. But... It's that we have to pray for our leaders because it's not just an impact on the church. Revival impacts the world around the church. I mean, again, look at the, the, the great awakenings. I'd like to see a fourth great awakening. I'd love to see this country come back and be right on track with what God has it again. Will we see it? I don't know. But we should be praying for it. We should be praying for those leaders because that's the only time that Jesus said that when we're praying, he says, first of all, pray for those in authority. First of all, it means we start there. So one, we should know who they are. And two, we should be praying for them, that these leaders would uh, come to an understanding of what God wants to do. But how do you measure a revival? How do, you, how do you know when it's going on? When we pray for rain, we know when that prayer's been answered, right? It's wet. But we're praying for revival is different because true revival. One of the markers of it is it doesn't just change the church. It changes the culture around it and the individuals and the cultures. The Great Awakening, there were hundreds and thousands of people that would show up and they would have this interest in prayer all of a sudden. They would start holding these prayer meetings. And there would be hundreds and then thousands of people that would show up for these prayer meetings. I, I, over in England, there was a revival over there, and I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head. But in the middle of it was going on, all the bars went out of business. What was it called? Wales? I was going to say Welch, but was it Welch Revival? Okay, Welch Revival. You should look that up. All of the bars closed because they didn't have any business because everybody was going to church. Okay? That's a little different than it is today. I mean, you think about this stuff. There's, there's just so many, so many different things going on. It's like there's this sudden shift of people's interest in spiritual things. Well, you know what? I don't know if you picked up on this, but there is a sudden interest in people in spiritual things. It's It's, it's minor. And it's not always godly things, but it is most certainly spiritual things. You know, it's supernatural stuff. Now, revival is not measured by how many people you baptize or how many people join your church or how financially well it is because you can have all of that stuff going on and not have one life truly changed by God. That's not how you measure it. But it's, it's by how the culture around you has shifted. Okay? In the second great awakening, in this state of New York, over a 16-year period, Take a guess to how many murders. There were 16 years, state of New York. That includes New York City, just in case you're not familiar with geography. Okay? 
eight over a 16-year period. There may have been eight in Chicago this morning by now. I mean, who knows? 16, that means that's, that's one every other year. It's not like that anymore. But it was like suddenly people don't have an interest in killing each other anymore. Why is that? Because the culture is being changed. This is the mark of revival. It's not how good we feel. It's that people's lives are being changed. And those things can be long-lasting or they can be short-lived. It depends on the people involved and how much effort we're willing to put into it. But it's not a revival unless it gets outside the church and it affects the culture. It's no different than going to the Old Testament. There's several we would... If, with, the Bible never used the word revival, okay? It doesn't say revival. It's the principle in it. The turning away from the old to the new. And so it changes. And so would revival change our government? Well, think about the nation of Israel. Because you had kings like Jehoshaphat, Josiah, and Asa. And all of those guys were recognizing that, oh my goodness, this is not right. We need to change this and begin to follow God. And it completely did a 180 for the nation of Israel. And we went through that over, I don't know, over a year ago. We were talking about the different kings. You had good kings, you had bad kings. The good kings were the ones who followed God. Now, all of these events are recorded in the books of Kings and the book of Chronicles. The book of Kings is written by Jeremiah. The book of Chronicles was written by Ezra. Jeremiah was a prophet. He was called the weeping prophet. Read Jeremiah. He was always weeping over the nation of Israel. And, but the prophets were a part of the king's staff. They were brought in. Any decisions that were being made, they were brought in. They were asked questions. They were, even if they didn't like it. Even uh, Ahab would call in the prophet when they're getting ready to do something. He's like, I don't even like this guy. He never tells me what I want to hear. Which is what we need. You know, more people to just tell us what we want to hear. But that's where we are. But anyway, this thing was, was completely a part of the political system. But you read the book of Kings, and it is very political in that sense. It was said, uh, you know, King so-and-so died, and he was laid with his fathers. You know, that's what it always said. But get over in the Chronicles. Written by Ezra, he was a scribe. This is the man that was a part of the prayer. He was part of the fasting. He was part of the temple service. He was part of all that kind of stuff. And it's a lot more spiritual of a writing. Right? Because he was involved in that. His, in the Chronicles, say, King so-and-so sinned against God. God struck him down, and he's buried with his fathers. Same guy, same story, different perspective. You have a political perspective. You have a spiritual perspective. Why were they taken out? Because they were judged by God for not being obedient to him. So it's interesting when you begin to do that. But here's the thing. Every revival that's in the Bible, when we talk about these coming back, there is a, something that is notably that happens, something notable, some notable shift in there, is that the sexual deviancy changes. Every time there's a revival, the first thing they do is they've got to get out the temple prostitutes and the sodomites. They drive them out of the temple, and many times they would kill them. Because technically, that is what the law told them to do. They would drive the, the homosexuals out because this is not of God. This was against God. And so this political position would change inside the nation as a result of a spiritual shift in the people. Did God not love those people? Of course he did. But they were wrong and they weren't living right. And yet we're all too often focused about, well, we just got to love people and all of that. No, we need to be correct on God's side, not politically correct. But if a true revival comes in, it starts here. It starts with us, and it begins to trickle out into the culture. And the mindset begins to shift in the people, which will change the way that the government operates and all of that. And then now, suddenly, we can say, look back and say, look what God has done. This is what we're wanting. 
I mean, there's no question about it, guys, is that our nation has gone in a negative direction over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I mean, the things that you see on TV today is just unbelievable. You would have never seen that 20 years ago. The language that's used and the, the graphicness of it and all of that, it's unreal. I mean, think back to some of you that are just slightly older than me. Ricky and Lucy didn't sleep in the same bed. And that was perfectly acceptable. But they didn't do it. Of course, then you got the other one. What was the guy that always wanted to punch his wife? Powell, right in the kisser. What was his name? Yes. Yes. Honeymooners. Right. Okay. That's unacceptable. Don't, don't do that. But, but, you know, that's the other end of the coin. But, guys, revival starts right here. It starts with prayer, people being prayerful. But you've got to be willing to do the work. Don't pray for it if your heart is not in it. If you're not prepared to make the sacrifice necessary, then don't be praying for revival. There's always a joke. It's like, don't ever pray to God for patience because it'll get tested, you know. Don't pray for it if you're not ready to handle it, because it's going to cost you. It'll cost you everything you got, because why? If you have the heart for God, then you want people's lives changed, and that's what a true revival is. It's not just something that makes us feel good. It's not what we would call a Holy Ghost meeting. It's not where we just come in here and just have a good old time, and we just worship God and all of that. That's not revival. Revival takes time. There's a generation that's always raised up with God, and I really, and I, I'm, you know, there's no way to know until it's, uh, it's gone, but it just is interesting to me. Look at this young generation. Every, seems to be every one of their business started, it started with some sort of social aspect in mind that they give 10% of the proceeds to this charity or that charity. That's unprecedented. Why do you start, I mean, you can do that, and some people do do that. I mean, we're certainly a generous country, but that is part of their business model that they're doing that. And it's not just one or two. It's all over the place. Why is that? It seems to be that there's a generation being raised up that's thinking beyond just themselves. Now, they got a lot of other screwed up stuff going on, but that's besides the point. You know, I'm not trying to say, hey, look at this generation. Aren't they great? No, they're not great. They're a long ways from great. Samson wasn't great either. I don't know if you picked up on that. He was an idiot and a jerk. I mean, he tied two foxes' tails together and put torches on them, sent them through the, the fields and the city and burned a bunch of stuff down. Okay? I don't know any teenagers that's done that yet. Hopefully they don't. But guys, this revival aspect is not just what we think it is. We've got to get bigger than that. We've got to think the way God thinks. And we need to be pouring into this next generation, allowing him to be in control, not just us. It's no longer what I want. Not my will, but your will be done. There's a reason Jesus prayed that. He's like, it's not just what I want to do here. It's what he wants. Guys, when we look at this and we go forward in these, these ideas, is that when we start praying to reach the lost, what we need to understand is it's not some simple concept. We're not going to pray them in. It's just pray for the laborers. Pray for laborers to go out into the harvest. And you know what's funny is I've seen this happen many times. It'll start with somebody who's praying, Lord, send somebody. Because there's people that need to be reached. They're lost. We need to reach them. But in those times of prayer, their hearts begin to shift, and it's like, Lord, where do you want me? Okay, here's something you probably don't know. Christopher Columbus. Now, we talk about end times. Okay, one of the questions I get asked is like, you know, are we wasting our time because, you know, the, Jesus is coming soon. This is just a, a sign of the times. You get into more eschatological looking at this stuff. But you know what's funny? is back in the 1400s, they were convinced that Jesus was coming back within 80 years because they would say every prophecy that needs to be fulfilled in order for Jesus to come back has been fulfilled. 1400s. We're a little bit past that. Christopher Columbus and his, his memoirs, his journal, 
writes that, um, you know, Jesus is coming back in the next 70 or 80 years. And I'm reading the book of Isaiah and it says something about that there's aisles over there to the east. So I need to go because they need to hear the gospel. Okay, there's something you probably didn't know about Christopher Columbus. He was led by the Holy Spirit is what he says in his journal to go find this continent. Okay, so you got that. You got the same thing in the 1800s, like, man, every prophecy that Jesus needs to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back, sorry, fulfilled. We think it'll be the next 50 years. Okay, we're a little bit past that. Paul and, and, and Peter thought the same thing, and they were the ones that saw Jesus. So what am I saying? We are supposed to be abiding until he comes, doing the work of the ministry until he comes. We need to be praying until he comes. He needs to come back and find busy little bees doing his work instead of just sitting around and talking about his work. It's not enough to be a hearer. We've got to be doers. What's it going to cost? What am I willing to sacrifice? When Jesus says that you've got to sell all and follow me, that's exactly what he meant. He didn't mean follow me and wait for a comfy lifestyle. It can be very uncomfortable. I mean, Jim and Alma goes to El Salvador now. It stay, the stay is a lot more comfortable, but it's still a very uncomfortable country. And they started off in the sticks. Everything's the sticks there. They started off in the bad parts and all of that, and they're to the point now where they, they don't stay there because they're more effective ministry-wise by not staying there. But it's through that work and what's it going to cost and what are we willing to do. There's pictures of Jim digging ditches and, and building buildings and all of that kind of stuff, sweating and, and doing all the hard work. What's it, that was what he would do for his vacation time. He'd take time off and go do ministry. What's it worth to you? What are you going to do? I, uh, I'm hoping to show you guys some pictures next week. I mean, they've had such an impact down there that they, they've, they get funds for these different families that come in, and they're building this gal a house. And this gal is the one that goes over there and, and delivers different money and different things that you guys send down there for these different people. He sent me a picture the other day of Elmo, the one whose wife passed away with a little girl. That's the healthiest I've ever seen this man. He was skin and bones. He was the guy giving blood twice a week, I think, trying to pay for his wife's medical bills. He looks fantastic. Why? Because God's providing for all of these things. Through somebody who was willing to take some time and go out there and do the work that's necessary. I mean, we've got people that do this stuff constantly. We need to be back and supporting them. But we, we can't just wait for someone to go. We've got to be willing to do it right here. We look at the lives of Peter and Paul and the apostles. Man, they're going out and they're reaching all the lost. The stories you don't read are the people that just lived in those cities and went to work and did their job and were still a witness to the gospel and were sharing the love of Christ with people. You don't read about them, but they were everywhere. And they had a bigger impact than probably Peter or Paul and any. They were the ones that got it started. But they were, the other guys were the ones that carried it on. And that's where we've got to be. We've got to follow God wherever he leads us and be willing to do whatever it takes. I would love to see a move of God in this city that just completely turns it upside down. That we had no choice but to have church every single night because people were being healed. People were being saved and being delivered from the power of the enemy. Wouldn't that be awesome? And we all say, boy, that would be awesome. The question is, what are we willing to sacrifice to make that happen? Because all of our lives would change drastically. Amen. And I don't know about you, but I'm willing to dive on that grenade whenever it's time. Because it is, I want to see the lost reach. Every day is an opportunity. We've got to take it seriously. Amen.